How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. One of the things that I came into um, the situation with uh, over and over and over again was, oh, my dog is barking, my dog is hyperactive, or I'm having a baby, I have to get rid of the dog. So all of these reasons that people were relinquishing their dogs to shelters or trying to give them up, um, I tried to turn it around and say, okay, how can we keep these dogs to stay in these homes so that the dogs that are already in the shelter and already on the euthanasia lists uh, perhaps get a better chance at life? Hey there, and welcome to the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I am your host, Ryan McGuire. It's a podcast where I get to talk with people from all over the world who have a story to share or knowledge in areas to help us on our journey of being happy. In this episode, I am lucky enough to chat with Sarah Andreco, a canine behavior consultant and a certified service dog trainer. So anybody who either has a dog or is thinking of getting a dog, this is an episode loaded with information. I've had dogs in my life for over 15 years now, and I learned so much from this episode. Sarah is definitely the real deal. After this episode, I feel like I can call her the dog whisperer. She is so knowledgeable in how dogs think, how to train dogs, um, if you're having issues with your dog, how to fix it, how to work on it with them. And in this episode, I try to leave no stone unturned. I ask so many questions and she has an answer and knows all of them. Super impressive. So if you've listened to my last few episodes, you know that I am very soon getting a puppy, which is why this was perfect timing to have Sarah on my podcast. And we talk about what to do when you bring home a puppy into your life, into your world, how to train it, how to introduce it to other dogs and animals that may be in the house. We go through an entire checklist of what to do and how to do it properly and what are the expectations, what's the timeline. We talk about what toys to get, what treats to get, what food a dog should be eating, how to work on pulling a leash, um, how to get him used to water, um, brushing them, grooming them, how to crate train properly. I promise if you or someone you know has a dog, this episode will be super helpful. I'm going to listen to this multiple times over the next seven to 10 days before I get my puppy and then no doubt contact Sarah again to help me out. She has videos on her website to show you what to do. She has so much information at sarahondraco.com. I'm going to post that link in the Instagram post. And we don't just talk puppies. She has so much experience and knowledge with any age dog. And we talk about that. I couldn't be any more impressed with Sarah. And I'm 100% positive after you listen to this episode, you'll feel the same way. This is a podcast that is loaded with information 
from the start right to the very end. So make sure to listen to all of it. There is so much helpful information. I'm going to stop rambling here because I am very excited for you to listen to this episode with Sarah Andreco. So let's get rolling. So on this episode of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast, I am very happy to have Sarah Andreco, a canine behavior consultant, which we just discussed is very much different than a dog trainer. Um, but I would love you for you to introduce yourself real quick and let's go over the differences between a dog trainer and the canine behavior consultant um, that is your title. Sure, Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Um, I always look for platforms to talk about thing, all things dog, so I'm very excited to have a conversation with you about dogs <laughs> and puppies tonight. Um, but starting off with a great point, I mean, there's a lot of different professions out there in behavior and training, so um, knowing what you need and knowing what the difference in those professions are can really be helpful. So to give you an idea, a dog trainer is someone that does, for the most part, basic obedience. So think of things like sit, down, stay, skills, tricks, things like that. Some of them dabble a little bit in some fear aggression or some dominance aggression, as they call it, used to call it. Uh, but behavior professionals are more along the lines of tackling specific behavioral issues. So behavior professionals aren't so much the sit down, stay type. They're more of the um, dogs that are really fearful or anxious or obsessive compulsive that have different disorders or kind of more deep rooted issues, behavioral problems, so to speak. So that's kind of the difference between a, a typical dog trainer and a typical behavior professional. That's really good to know. I imagine that if I were to have issues with a dog with some of those problems you just said, I probably would have Googled dog trainer. So I'm very yes. glad to know that. Yeah, now, most people do. Would you say that you, because of that, are they mostly older dogs because of that? Because you have a tendency to know all these issues no, actually not really. They span all the way from puppy all the way through senior citizen dogs. Yeah, it's quite a awesome. wide variety of different ages. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Because like, well, how early in life would you say dogs show some of these signs that you work with? Oh, you can start seeing if you have genetic issues or um, just unfortunate upbringing with neglect or abuse or uh, something along those lines, you can see things very early on in puppies, four or five, six weeks of age. Um, when you start seeing things that early on, it's, it sets you up for some pretty big red flags when it comes to how they're going to be as adults. But yeah, you can see them very early on in puppyhood. That's not typical. That's not normal. It's usually through the developmental process. Once they're through their kind of critical puppy period that you'll start seeing some of these behaviors as a result of a lack of providing for their needs when they are young puppies. So it, it, it ranges. Um, it's not typically in the younger puppies that we see issues, but it's after you get through some of those critical periods into early adulthood, adolescence, we really see some things start to kick up. And then um, after their last kind of period of genetic and sexual maturity, um, right around two years of age, sometimes we'll start seeing some changes as well. Okay. What, would you say every dog is born with almost like a clean slate and they learn these issues or are some just born with some of these issues? Uh, some of them are born with issues, but I think that's a much smaller portion of the population. Yes, genetics plays a big factor, but um, environment plays a huge factor. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes on, especially during puppyhood, that really creates that foundation for the type of overall adult dog that you're going to get. So, um, you know, genetics is what it is, and that's kind of what you get, and that's your that's your foundational painting, so to speak. And then everything environmental, everything nurture just fills in all the colors and all the lines. And so, 
you have the, the foundational base and then you kind of build on that. But the, the environment is so very critical and important no matter what the genetic base is that you have. Yeah, because I've had two puppies. I'm getting a third very soon. So we'll get into Yay! that momentarily. <laughs> I know. I'm excited. I'm nervous too. Um, Three's a lot. <laughs> well, one, well, one of them, I, I've done a few episodes recently that she, she passed, my oldest one passed. And oh. so uh, I'm sure you have experience with that part. It's, it's the worst part. You know, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's you know, so hard. They're only here for such a short period of time. And we, we bond with them so deeply that it's very difficult to lose them in such a short period of time. It sucks. I, I had her for 15 and a half years. And obviously, oh. yeah, I would have signed up for 15 and a half years, 15 and a half years ago. Um, yeah. But when that when that day happened, I would have signed up for another 50 if I could have. Um, that another feeling. Yeah, I don't want to get too far down that road. <laughs> it's uh, let's keep this a little more happy and updated. Because I am getting the puppy, and I'm all about dog rescues, um, saving dogs, and I've always kind of almost had like the mindset too. Like I wonder if it was true, and I think you just kind of confirmed it that if you were to get a puppy from a young age, though, you do know the entire history. That dog knows you, and you know that dog. Um, and I, so I do imagine that you do see, do you see a lot of um, dogs that have been like rescued where people don't really know the history and, and what's happened in this past? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's um, lots of puppies all across the United States, well, the world really, um, that there is an unknown history. You know, they're found on the side of the road or somebody dumps them, somebody it's drops so them at the shelter. It is. I mean, we, we kill tens of thousands of dogs still almost every day. I want to say thousands, thousands of dogs every day in shelters. So there's definitely a lot out there. A lot of them do have known histories. So some of the ones that get turned into shelters, they can tell you, you know, oh, we didn't spay or neuter our, our family pets and they had this oops litter and we can't handle all of these puppies. So they turn them in. So sometimes you can get a full background and that can, that can be helpful in how you um, raise your puppy, but overall, you're still going to socialize them. You're still going to teach them all the basics. You still, you still need all those puppy foundation, foundational skills, whether you know a history or whether you don't. So it's almost like, um, you know, treating a disease, you know, are more tests going to tell you to treat this animal differently or are more tests just going to give you more information, but you're still going to treat it the same way. Puppies are kind of the same. So whether you know the background or not, you're still going to provide all of these different things that every puppy in a young stage of its life needs. So, mm. um, oftentimes with rescue, you don't really get that background because there just isn't one. And sometimes it's a very dishonest background too. You know, someone mm. is feeling shame or guilt or doesn't want to be judged for turning in a litter of puppies or a pregnant female because they feel like they haven't done a good job. And so in order to avoid that judgment, um, oftentimes people aren't always as upfront about their history, how they were kept, if they were socialized, if they were not, if they were around people or other animals, they just kind of want to get in, do the deed, try to move on with life, learn from it and, um, you know, let go of them. So often there is not much of a history, but, you know, again, you're still going to try to provide that same upbringing, whether you have that background or not. The only thing I really love about having a, a good in-depth background is just providing that additional information that can help you if you do start to see some things arise. Like if you see any specific fears or any tendencies, uh, you can really pinpoint those a little bit better and really help that puppy work through those issues. I just don't know how people give up their dogs. I, I don't understand. And the fact it's that you just tough. said they kill thousands a day, that's, that's the worst thing I've heard in a long time. That's, mm -hmm. 
Man, dogs are better than humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. Really we've done, we've done some, some, scary things to domesticated dogs. And we definitely have quite an overpopulation problem. There just aren't enough open homes as there are puppies out there and other adult dogs out there that need homes to go to. So we end up with that issue. Um, a lot of dogs are relinquished to shelters because of behavioral problems too. Yeah. So a lot of it is preventive, you know, if, yeah. if, if they have the education and the resources to prevent some of these behaviors and or treat them, these dogs don't necessarily get turned over because you think about somebody that doesn't know any different, you know, they, they just don't have the education. They relinquish a dog and then they go out mm -hmm. and get another one and surprise that one has a behavioral issue and you just start that vicious cycle all over again. So that's why there's so many people really pushing for free spay and neuter, trying to help families that, you know, may, maybe can't afford spay and neuter so that those mm. oops litters don't happen. Um, you know, they've been trying to pass regulations on backyard breeders for so long, and it just keeps getting fought by the AKC and the UKC and everybody that registers puppies because they don't want to mm. lose money. Yeah. And that's the truth of it all. It is, it, it's a money game. People want to make a buck. And if you can breed two dogs together that look pretty, then mm -hmm. you can make some money. So. Of course. Yeah, I know. We kind of shot out of a cannon here because my questions just start keep coming up. But real quick, <laughs> let's talk about you and your history because it's one of those things where I'm happy where I'm at in life, but if I did have to do it over, there's a decent possibility I'd be doing what you do right now, actually. Because <laughs> I think it's one, of the, it's one of the coolest jobs you can have. So let's talk Oh, it's never too late. <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah, well, we'll see. I get a puppy in, in a week, so we'll see if I'm still saying that. Um, so how did <laughs> give yourself time after you the get, puppy? I know. How did you get into this? Where did it all start? I fell into animal behavior. So, um, over 10 years ago, I started the American Pitbull Foundation and, um, I really targeted the biggest population of canines in the U S in need. And that, those are pitbull type dogs. They're the most abused, abandoned, neglected, overbred, misunderstood, class of dogs on the planet basically so they have my heart they're fantastic dogs there's four different breeds that fit into the pitbull category so um i started an education program humane education to teach dogs about how to interact responsibly with kids and we use pitbull type dogs to do that um, we had a small rescue program going at the time and so that is really kind of where i got my start because um one of the things that i focused on in starting that organization was why we're seeing such a high number of euthanasia of pit bull type dogs in shelters, why there's such a stigma associated with them, why so many of them are ending up abandoned, abused, and neglected. And um, one of the focal points for me was in-home retention. So trying to help families that were facing difficult situations with their pit bulls in particular to try to keep those families together. So whether it was a medical issue and they needed medical attention, we were able to provide that. Or there was a financial concern. They didn't have enough money to pay for dog food every single month or cover their vaccines that year because they got laid off or lost a job or a behavioral issue. So one of the things that I came into um, the situation with uh, over and over and over again was, oh, my dog is barking, my dog is hyperactive, or I'm having a baby, I have to get rid of the dog. So all of these reasons that people were relinquishing their dogs to shelters or trying to give them up, um, I tried to turn it around and say, okay, how can we keep these dogs stay in these homes so that the dogs that are already in the shelter and already on the euthanasia lists uh, perhaps get a better chance at life? Maybe they can get adopted because we can slow down this influx of animals into the sheltering system. Um, and it proved to be really successful. We were able to really keep a lot of these families together just by working through some very simple, well, to me, simple, to owners, not so much because dog behavior is not, is not 
first nature. Obviously, it takes some time and some practice to understand how another species, you know, thinks, communicates, and that sort of thing. So the more I was able to keep these families together just by working them through some of these behavioral problems they were having or solving some medical issues, pain was a big thing that I saw. So there were a lot of behavioral concerns and issues. Um, these dogs were acting out because there was a lot of pain. So that's a contributing factor, and it's a major one. And so um, I really just fell into behavior because I did so much behavior work with uh, clients one-on-one -on -one through my nonprofit organization that um, after a while I was like, wow, this is really kind of a thing. So aside from my nonprofit organization, I really like to do this kind of full time and just help people with all different types of breeds and all different types of problems. So that's kind of how I got into, into behavior work. <laughs> that's fantastic. And like, you know, some people have jobs where they feel good about themselves afterwards and some people don't. Like, I feel like you probably feel really good at the end of the day. Like you made a difference in someone's life and their dog's life. You're doing really good work. I appreciate that. Obviously, I'm a huge dog person. Like, I love hearing that. That warms me up. So that's, that's, super, that's really super cool. Yeah, I, I, It's I, rewarding. That, it is. Yeah, that makes a difference to me. You know, like rewarding is the right is the right term like that's got to be so rewarding to know you're making a difference and you're helping these dogs and and their families too i think that's fantastic yeah i love getting the text messages and the pictures even from people that i haven't helped in over a year look what my dog did today look what we did look what happened look what he's doing and you know so i get really excited when they get excited more than anything else because they get to see the progress that you know they've made with their own dog from sticking it out and following behavior protocols and you know, so I love getting those text messages and those photos and videos that people will send to me after the fact. That's, that's what really makes my day. That's so awesome. Do you have um, like clients, is it all over the country, all over the world? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, mostly all over the country. I don't have anybody internationally currently, but um, yeah, I've got a couple of different clients in different states uh, that I help out virtually. So if they're not local, I have a virtual option that I offer as far as coaching sessions go, no matter what the problem might be. Um, if it's something really severe, uh, oftentimes I'll loop in a veterinarian because sometimes medical intervention is really helpful for severe cases. Mm -hmm. So if there's a, um, a board certified veterinary behaviorist in their area, I'll try to connect them with that person as well. But yep, I do. I do um, consultations and coaching all through the U.S. as well as in person locally here in Charlotte. So let's go ahead and plug your site real quick because you just mentioned virtually. So sarahondraco.com. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A. -A. No H, sarahondraco.com. We'll, we'll plug this at the end of the episode and I'll also post a link in the post as well. Um, so people can find you virtually, which is fantastic, especially in the times of COVID. One of the notes I have here is COVID. Have you seen a jump in people buying dogs or people requesting oh. dog training help? Yeah. Oh yes, big time, both. Um, a rise in adoptions, a rise in purchasing puppies, um, and I'm seeing two big key uh, behavioral issues from quarantine and COVID, and it's really from a lack of socialization and also being in environments where dogs aren't used to being um, kept in those environments. So um, we're seeing some owner-directed aggression, and we're also seeing some separation anxiety-related issues or separation-related problems. So, um, and a lot of it's just stress-induced from, you know, the stress of the families with new situations and being quarantined. And also often we'll, we've been seeing issues where um, you know, the dogs are used to the owners being gone a certain part of the day and now everybody's in everybody's space all the time. So yeah. yep, definitely an influx in adoptions and people buying puppies. And then, yeah, those two behavioral issues I'm seeing fairly frequently at this point. So would you say overall COVID has been a positive though for dogs? 
have to say, I, I, I'm concerned that we're going to have a lot of socialization issues out of this because people are afraid and, you know, for good reason, they don't want to get sick or ill or subject a loved one that might be immune compromised to potentially, you know, uh, acquiring COVID. But um, there's not as much puppy socialization going on. And I think that's going to create some issues for some adult dogs. I think we're going to have a group of dogs that are not uh, properly socialized um, that are, they're going to have some social issues later on in life. So I think we are going to see that. On the flip side, um, adoption rates are through the roof. That's never a bad thing in my eyes. Like we are getting dogs out of shelters like we never have before. And that, that makes my heart sing. I absolutely love that. Um, so it's kind of a two-sided situation to where, um, you know, I'm very concerned about how well socialized a lot of these puppies and dogs coming out of the shelters and from breeders are going to be. But at the same time, I'm super excited for how many dogs are really getting adopted right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you say socialized, knowing that I'm bringing up a puppy soon. Um, how many, let's go, you know, let's go ahead and talk about that. So I'm bringing home the puppy. So speaking of socialize, we'll hit this angle first. How do you socialize a dog? Like, what would you consider enough, enough dogs, enough interactions, knowing that I already have one here? Like, is there a target I should be setting in the first few weeks or months that these many different dogs at these many different times? How does that work? Yes. So it's really important that you socialize your puppy with um, other animals outside of the home and not just other dogs, but other puppies, other species, birds, cats. You know, if you can take them to a farm, let them meet a horse and have a positive experience with that, that can help set them up for adulthood as well. Um, so yes, really good point. Just because you have other animals at home doesn't mean that constitutes well-rounding of socialization. They need those external environment experiences also. The other thing I want to mention about socialization, it doesn't mean they have to like nose to nose and play with and interact with and roughhouse with another animal. Socialization also includes just working around other animals and other people too. So being in the same environment, whether they're actually interacting or not. So they might be at a distance. You might be at a park or you might be working around a dog park, but not in a dog park. That, that counts too. So that can help you build your bond and help you build obedience and at the same time kind of help with that socialization factor. Um, I do think interaction with other animals is really critical and important, but you have to do it in a safe way. So um, puppies in particular have what we call a critical social period, and they really need a lot of exposure, positive, very important that it's positive, happy, you know, friendly exposures um, before they're 12 weeks of age. And their initial socialization period starts with the mom. So mom does a lot. So the temperament of the mother is really important and plays a big role in how those puppies are gonna turn out. And all of that sibling interaction um, while they're still with mom and uh, any interaction that they have during that period with other animals, other people, uh, up until you take your puppy home. So whether you're adopting or whether you're purchasing from a breeder, um, ideally you don't wanna take that puppy home before they're about nine weeks of age. And then from nine weeks to 12 weeks, you've got a lot of socialization. So on a daily basis, you want to be getting that puppy out and exposing them, exposing them to the external environment with other people and other dogs. Again, they don't have to always directly interact. Yes, some interactions should be um, uh, accounted for. They should be able to have some of that. But um, the other side to that is how do I do it safely? Because at 12 weeks of age, between nine and 12 weeks of age, you don't have all your vaccines on board. So you're 
you should be concerned about things like parvovirus and distemper and contracting worms, you know, things that could be potentially very harmful to puppies. But socialization is so critical for them and setting them up for success as adult dogs to where they don't have a lot of these behavioral problems that you could prevent just by socialization, but you want to make sure that it's done safe. So you should only be socializing your puppy around other dogs that you know are vaccinated, that are current on their vaccines. Um, not, you know, I won't even get into titers and all that kind of stuff, but just making sure they're current on their vaccines, Um, not having them in high traffic areas. So as much as you want to throw your puppy in the PetSmart cart and take them shopping and go pick out toys, try to avoid that. Um, It's just too high uh, of a populated area to where it's just too much exposure and too much risk because they're not checking vaccines every dog that comes in and out of PetSmart and it's a high populated area. Plus you have lots of grassy area where lots of animals are defecating and urinating and that puts them at risk. So when you think about socializing your puppy, yes, socialize them, but um, make sure it's with other animals that are vaccinated and that it's in a safe way um, and that it's short, positive spurts. You know, having, having puppies play too long to where they start getting tired and cranky can result in not as positive of an experience. So um, short little spurts with other animals that are, are safely vaccinated. I never would have guessed that. I would have just been like, just play until you let me sleep, please. <laughs> so that's good to know. I'm, I, I'm so glad we're recording this. So I don't necessarily need to take notes because I'll be listening to this <laughs> once or twice in the next week. Um, so knowing that I have a dog in the house already. And so let's say the day that I bring her home, what is the proper way to introduce the dog that's already in my house to the puppy? So I wouldn't even let them interact the first day. I'm all about slow and steady wins the race. Um, Even if the puppy is excited to meet you and excited to meet your new dog in this new environment, it's stress, right? So good stress, bad stress, it's still stress. Um, You know, I live right by a theme park. You go to Carowinds here, you're all excited. You have so much fun and you're riding roller coasters and you're all amped up and your adrenaline's going nuts. And, but then at the end of the day, you go home and you're like, oh. So it was all good stress. It was great, but it's not the time to have a serious conversation or make a life decision (laughs) or anything like that. So um, think about that in terms of your puppy as well. So even though they're in a new place, they get to seek out new things and it can be really enriching for them to use their sniffer in your new home and and meet and greet new people and new dogs, it's still stress. So take it slow. Um, Puppies require a lot of sleep. To make sure naps are going well. But as far as introductions go, I do it really slowly. And I actually have a video on this um, on my YouTube channel about how to introduce your puppy to a new dog. Um, and it talks about kind of the energy between the two animals and when it's appropriate and when it's not. Um, because you really need that kind of calm energy before uh, allowing the two to kind of greet and sniff and get to know one another in closer quarters, just so that you can avoid any altercations that otherwise might not be there. They might meet each other just fine if it's conducted appropriately. Whereas if you just throw them together and be like, Hey guys, here you are. Say hello to your new best friend. You know, that might be a little much. It's kind of like pushing two kids together before they're really ready to be best friends. They're like, Whoa, we, we, let's get to know each other. Let's ask some questions. Let's have an icebreaker, you know, something like that. So, um, the other thing too, is dogs are really good at just throwing themselves into something. And then all of a sudden going, Whoa, you know, I I wasn't expecting that. And so, If you kind of help slow that process down for them, it can really help first introductions. So to answer your question, sorry, that was really long. Day one, oh, I don't is, typically all the information. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, day one, I don't let them meet. I mean, they might, they might see each other through a baby gate, through a crate. They might smell each other. But remember, dogs have an excellent sense of smell. So they don't have to be anywhere near each other to smell each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they have 
excellent hearing. So let them get to know each other first, especially on that first day by their primary senses. You know, when we meet someone, we're very visual forward. You know, we're looking each other in the eye, we're checking each other out. Like, what are you wearing? What's your stature? How's your position, your posture? We take all this information in with our eyes. Dogs, even though they're visual creatures too, typically more so rely on their sense of smell and their sense of hearing initially. So they can have some space and some distance. They can use that hearing and that scent to kind of get to know others in the environment at a, at a safe distance first, if that makes sense. Would it be a good idea to, let's say you have a connection to the breeder before you bring home the dog to like mail them and or bring them like a, a t-shirt or something that is kind of scented so they kind of get to know you and or the dog before bringing in the house? Is that worthwhile or no? Um, you can, they'll be able to recognize scents. So, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're close to the breeder, I would recommend visiting the puppy several times. I would go and visit and play. Um, you don't want to overhandle them necessarily, especially when they're really little, but I think getting to know them as they're still with their mother and siblings after three weeks, I wouldn't mess with them before three weeks of age, but after that, I think that's good. But if you can't, if they're too far away, um, you can. I don't, I don't really know how much of an impact it will have on them, but I think um, it's always good to introduce things ahead of time. So um, I'm all for the idea of sending something that is scented with uh, the uh, other members of the household ahead of time, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I wish. So, so where I'm getting the breeder, about four and a half, five hours away. So unfortunately... I haven't had a chance to stop up, but I've been getting a lot of great pictures and videos. I'm happy about that. <gasps> but yeah, no Aww. opportunity to go see and hold and let them know who I am, which I know would be, be a huge benefit, but unfortunately. Yeah, if you can, great, do it. Um, if you can't, you know, some people, some people purchase, uh, depending if it's a rare breed, you know, it might be on the other side of the country. It might be coming from Germany, Russia. I mean, we import dogs all the time. So it might not be a possibility, but um, you do the best you can with what you have. And once you get the puppy, I mean, even if you don't visit them ahead of time, you can bond very, very tightly with a puppy mm. without a oh, problem. For sure. I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> I can, yeah, I, I bonded well with both of my dogs, especially the one Coda who was 15 and a half. Um, oh, best friends, yeah. best friends, it's the best. Now, do you have like, so when I bring my dog into my house and she's here, is there like a checklist that you have that I and or people should follow when they bring a puppy home? Yes. Um, checkpoint number one, don't rush it. So everyone gets their puppy home. They're excited to train and teach this puppy all these new things. Give your puppy the first two weeks to like get to know the routine, work on things like where we're supposed to potty, um, you know, where we eat, uh, getting them used to the pattern and the routine of daily life. So getting them on their nap schedule and their feeding schedule and all that kind of stuff. But um, you can do some minimal skill work here and there with them. But um, the first two weeks is really kind of that getting to know you period. So Outside of socialization, again, you want to take them for outside exposure, um, but we're really just focusing on getting used to the new environment, the new people, other people in my external environment, but not like getting down to business with skill work and stuff like that. Um, anytime I bring a new puppy home, I attach them to me with a, a hands-free leash. So they're tethered to me almost all of the time that they're out of their crate for nap time. Uh, because that's a really critical kind of bonding period. Um, and that's really where you can step in and start providing some of that parental guidance right off the bat. 
so I find that that tethering them to you, which is also known as umbilical training, can be incredibly helpful. Um, I'm really kind of jumpstart uh, getting things going with your new puppy once you bring them into the household. So that's usually what I'll focus on. That's great advice. Do you have any tips and tricks about like going to the bathroom outside? <laughs> Yes. So consistency is key in anything that you're going to teach your new puppy. So um, they love predictability. They love routine. So using the crate can be a very big help for potty training. I don't recommend using things like pee pads or using those little grass patches on the inside of the house because it can actually confuse them and make potty training a lot longer. Um, they need a confined space, but they need that confined space to be safe and comfortable. So Teaching them to love the crate, having a good association with that crate is really, really important. So putting fun stuff in there, treats, always making it exciting when they're going in, putting them in there for rest time and nap time, um, that can help you with potty training immensely. So for me, um, when I am working on potty training a dog, anytime that crate door opens, we go from the crate right outside and I wait mm -hmm. them out. Um, if they pee or poo, then I make a party about it and we have treats and it rains from the sky and it's the best day ever. Um, if they don't, then they go back in the crate and I'll usually leave them in there for five minutes and then open the crate door and try again. So right. it's kind of a waiting game originally, because all you're going to do is really just mark that behavior. Uh, when they go pee or poo outside, you're just marking. Yes, that's what I want. That's good. Repeat that. Um, on the flip side to that, when you're indoors and they're not in the crate, if they're attached to you on a hands-free leash, you have the opportunity in the event that they start to go, you're right there and you can see it of just interrupting that behavior. Oh, wait, you know, that kind of thing. And then we go outside, we let them go, we wait it out and kind of let them finish. And then we have a party again when they go potty. Okay. Um, but that crate can really help with that consistency because anytime you open that crate door, we go right outside. So once they get into this pattern, because they're in the crate throughout the day for sleeping, for their independent time, which is so important for puppies, um, once they wake up in the morning from you know sleeping through the evening, which by the way, your puppy won't do if you get them, get them young at first, of course, but mm -hmm. um, they get used to this pattern of predictability that when the crate door opens, dad takes me outside and I go potty. And so that becomes a habit and that rolls into their abilities when they're learning to control their muscles and hold their bladders and that bladder gets stronger and stronger to where they're able to do that or their urethra does. Um, but yeah, for, for potty training, I highly recommend using a crate, making that a really positive place for your puppy and just being super consistent about getting them outside every single time. And if they don't go, bringing them back into the crate, waiting it out for another few minutes and then trying again. The more, um, the more your puppy is away from you, unsupervised, <laughs> the more likely you are to have an accident. And you got to remember, they don't know the difference between where they can go and where they can't. So if you don't actually catch them in the act of going to the, the, the uh, bathroom in the house, that sounds weird for a puppy, going to the bathroom, <laughs> go to the bathroom or urinating or defecating in the house. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you don't catch them, there's really not anything you can do about it. I mean, they, they're not going to understand if you offer any form of punishment. You know, you can't drag them back in the room and be like, no, you know, bad dog. It doesn't really do anything but confuse them more. So really supervising your puppy 24-7 at first is, is your best bet to, to mm -hmm. having a speedy potty training um, process. The other side to that is, is realistic expectations, right? So how long can puppies actually hold it for? Well, um, it varies puppy to puppy, obviously, and abilities, uh, but there's a general rule of thumb that you can kind of use. So you take the puppy's age, say, um, you know, a puppy is three months old. 
and then you add an hour. So a puppy that's three months old should be able to hold it for three plus one hours, which is four hours at a time, right? So that's a general rule of thumb. Some can hold it a little longer, some need a little bit less depending on how long they've had to hold it already. Uh, but that'll just give you an idea as to when you can start timing and make an actual potty schedule for your puppy so that you can set them up for success and getting them outside when you know that they need to go. Okay, good. I have many questions on this. So I wrote down <laughs> <laughs> how, um, what, like, like what age should they be able to hold it throughout the night? What should be my expectation? Um, by the time your puppy is five months old, they should be pretty much potty trained and holding it through the night. They should be potty trained well before that as far as going in the house or not going in the house. But yeah, a five-month-old puppy can pretty much hold it through the night. Because I remember, so my younger dog, Raven, uh, she's three. So it was only three years ago that I had a puppy. And I do remember setting an alarm um, for like a week. And then like maybe like the next week, I'd push it a little bit, like 15 or 20 minutes. Um, I just didn't want to take any chances. Sometimes I, I would hear her whining and crying to go out and I would take her out. And sometimes I wouldn't and she'd go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to go back to what happened three years ago. Yeah. So most of the time they will wake you up if they start whining and fussing and sometimes it's subtle. So if you're a really deep sleeper, setting an alarm does help, especially once you get used to their kind of sleep cycle. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time they'll typically let you know and crate size matters too. Um, so it, with, with potty training, if, if the pu puppies don't typically want to be in their own urine and feces. So if they can go potty in their crate and get away from it, they will they don't understand that that's not a place where they shouldn't go just yet. So you want to, uh, for training purposes, when they get a little bit bigger, you can give them more room and they're potty trained, but you want something they can stand up, turn around and lay down in, and that's it because that's going to create the desire for them to kind of tighten those muscles up and hold it because they don't want to urinate or defecate and sit in it. Typically it's very unusual for puppies to want to be in their own feces or urine. So chances are if the crate is the right size, it's more likely that they're going to let you know when they have to go instead of just trying to kind of go over to the corner and go potty and then go back over to where they were sleeping and go back to sleep. Yeah. I noticed when I got Raven that the crate um, that I was using came with that little wall that yes. can cut, cut it in half and I gradually move it and move it. That made a huge difference because initially I didn't use it and then I can't would come home from work to a mess. Um, yep. Once I started putting that wall in there, that made a huge difference. So absolutely right on that. How long would you say, is there a typical timeline for a puppy to learn I should not be going in the house? What are my expectations with that? Oh, that, that really varies puppy to puppy to puppy. Okay. So, um, some are much easier to train than others. And I blame a lot of that on how we've bred domesticated dogs. <laughs> so some of them are a lot more difficult. I mean, you have, um, pugs, for example, sometimes English bulldogs, Cavalier King, Charles Spaniels are a little bit more difficult to potty train or train in general. Um, just because of kind of how their brain matures um, and how their development happens. So it can vary breed to breed and it can vary dog to dog for the most part. But if you're really consistent and you're working hard at it and you have a normal dog for the most part, I mean, they can usually learn, again, if they're going out on a regular schedule and they're getting up at night when they need to, um, it, you, might, you might knock it out within a couple weeks, easy, a week even, 
for, for okay. a lot of puppies. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. So a week to two weeks, if, if you're really struggling or, um, you're seeing that after a couple of weeks, they're just not getting it, uh, something, something's, something's amiss. So either they have too much space, too much lack of supervision or something else is going on, but usually it'll take me about a couple of weeks to get a puppy really well organized to go to the bathroom outside. Occasional accident that might happen, you know, all of a sudden they're like, Oh, I had to go or something startles them, or you might have a submissive peer here or there, that kind of thing. But yeah, for yeah. the most part, a couple of weeks. Okay. A couple of weeks. Cool. Good to know. And you said with the crate to put stuff in the crate, I've heard both. I've heard leave it. That's just where they should be laying down and go to sleep. And you said put stuff in the crate. What, what yeah. do you suggest? Uh, so you want them to have a really happy, positive association with it, right? So things that are fun, um, make sure they're things that are safe because, you know, puppies have a tendency to chew everything when they're teething. So you want to make sure it's not something they're going to swallow and get a foreign body. So I like to use Kongs. I think Kongs are a great idea for, for crate time for puppies. Um, I leave the crate doors open and I let the puppies go in and encourage them to go in without ever closing the doors. And I'll just drop some treats that they can eat. Um, but as far as things that you can put in there and leave in there with them, I usually stick to things like Kong or Kongs or really indestructible toys. And I'll usually lace them with something fun. So I like to freeze my Kongs because it takes the puppies a little longer to work the stuff out that's on the inside. So you can pack it with like some chicken baby food or a little bit of peanut butter, or you can use canned puppy food, just toss it in the freezer. Um, and then when the puppy goes into the crate for kind of downtime, nap time, you just toss the Kong in there with them and they go to town, they have a great experience and they learn that the crate is a fun place to be. Now, do you recommend leaving that in there all night too as well? Not typically. Um, reason being, I like setting the boundaries for puppies uh, when it's playtime, when it's downtime, when it's, you know, have fun run around, when it's one-on-one -on -one time. So I like setting that precedence. So most of the time, if I give them something going into the crate at night, it's something they're going to be able to completely digest. Um, okay. But generally speaking, you're up with your younger puppy when they're up in the morning because you know they have to potty and you have to get them outside. The older they get, you know, once they're past kind of that chewing everything phase, I don't mind leaving stuff with them in the crate overnight, but I always err on the side of safety more than anything else. That's why I don't typically put bedding in the crate with a puppy. Um, once they get older and they stop chewing on things and you want to put some bedding in there, I think that's totally fine, but I'm really cautious about them ingesting foreign objects and nighttime mm -hmm. is a great time to have that happen when you're not paying attention or you're, while you're sleeping. Um, so usually at night, I don't leave stuff in there too frequently. Do you have any other recommendations by, uh, besides a Kong for puppy treats or things for them to chew on? Uh, yeah, I love, um, I love the go nuts toy. Uh, it's very go interesting nuts. looking oblong, uh, cylindrical, big black toy. Um, but it's like indestructible and it wobbles and it bounces and it's just, uh, it's, they often, if you play with them first, of course, as you do with any toy, they have a lot of fun with it and, um, it's really hard to chew so they can go to town on it. Um, oftentimes you can just slather it in something smelly. Like, um, you know, if you're, you're cooking some meat or some bacon or something, you can just rub your hands on it and then their sniffer goes nuts and then they just chew on it and they have lots of fun. So I like the go nuts toy. Um, 
the crate's difficult because again, most of the time with the crate, if it's a Kong or a gonut, I'll leave it in there for a little while, but otherwise I want it something digestible that's safely digestible. So it's going to be a chewy or a treat that I know they're not going to break a piece off of and I know is not going to block them because puppies are really good at, t at trying to do that to themselves. So what about like um, outside of the crate? Let's just, let's, yeah, let's go. Yeah. Oh, oh, the world <laughs> is a playground for that. So um, anything that is enriching and what I mean by enriching is um, people always ask me, what does enriching mean? Um, it's simple. It just means that the puppy gets to make a choice and something positive and fun happens from it. So puzzle toys. I love puzzle toys. Um, and anytime you get a new toy, you should engage your puppy with it. Don't just get them a new toy and toss it to them like, oh, here you go. Um, they really need that one-on-one -on -one interaction and it makes the toys much more exciting for them and it keeps them more engaged when you do give it to them for independent time. So I love puzzle toys. Outward Hound makes a ton of them. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them in the pet store. Um, I can send you some links for some fun ones for this if you want to put it in the description too. Yes. Um, but puzzle toys that are interactive, that really gets their brain going. You need puppies to learn how to think uh, instead of just be straight impulse driven. Like I want, let me grab, let me take, let me do. No, let me think through this first. And I think puzzle toys are a great way to do that. Um, snuffle mats are a lot of fun. Uh, snuffle mats are kind of like these um, fun, fuzzy finger-like projection because they're made out of fleece uh, toys that you can drop treats in or some of their kibble in and they get to go to town rooting through everything trying to find all of the goodies that you left in there. Those are lots of fun. Um, I love playing tug with puppies. Um, that, that one is a, like a controversial one. People always think, oh, I'm going to make my dog aggressive by, you know, teaching it to tug. And, and, and that's really not the case. You can have a lot of fun playing tug with puppies if it's used in appropriate conditions. And sometimes the dogs can play tug and they can have fun with that. Things why like why do you say tug? Is it okay if they win or should you always win? No, you should definitely not always win. Let the puppy win sometimes too, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's not fun if you lose every time. Like if, if, you, <laughs> if you're playing a sport and you lose every single time, you're going to get really bored with that sport. You're going to be like, I suck at this. I'm not doing this anymore. And so, you know, let your puppy win, like really make them work for it, have lots of fun, and then just let them go and let them go, go to town with it. Um, same thing if you use like laser pointers to play with your puppy, especially your cat. If anybody out there has cats and you use laser pointers, please give your cat something to kill at the end of it so they don't go nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but, but they enjoy that catch, that capture, that win. So to keep it fun, keep them engaged and keep it exciting, absolutely let them win it every once in a while. Yeah. Okay. I know I cut you off because I wanted to get that in. Oh. You said something about fetch. Yeah. Fetch is a great game. Even just indoors in the house, um, just tossing the ball, having them bring it back because when you're teaching them fetch too, you can work on things like drop it. Um, so you can work with a trade and you can teach them how to give you the ball if they want you to continue tossing it for them. That's very enriching for them as well. Um, so yeah, there's lots of different fun activities. Um, teaching your puppy to follow, you know, using lures and showing them how to follow your finger points. Those are fun activities and games. I like to play, you know, which hand is the treat in, you know, mm. put a treat in the hand and shake it up and present it to the puppy and they get to pick, you know. Um, so lots and lots of things that you can do with puppies outside. Um, the other thing too I mentioned is, is really engaging them and using all of their body parts. So, um, getting their back feet up on something and getting their front feet up on something, going over things like rocks and boulders. I love using playgrounds when there's not a bunch of kids on them. So going out like on a Monday or a Tuesday morning, 
out to a playground, letting them go up on top of the, the things that you can, you know, climb up like the little mini rock walls they have, you get up on top and they go down the slide. Stuff like that is really good for your puppy through their developmental period too. It kind of helps them through things that they're unsure of and helps them have a good experience with things they might be unsure of, but also really helps them know where their body is and how to use it. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about things to do. So when I'm at the pet store, what type of things should I avoid? When you're at the pet store? Yeah, like is there toys and or treats to stay clear? Ah. Yes, I tend to stay away from rawhides um, because dogs are notorious for swallowing them and then not being able to push them through their system. Um, any toys that have kind of the... Or, or treats too that have the knuckles on the end that you could chew off or pull off potentially. Those they can also swallow and it can cause a blockage. So you need to be careful with things like that. Anything that they can take a chunk off of that could block their, their stomach or their, their intestines rather. Um, I like getting things like CET chews. They're specifically a type of dental chew that they look like rawhide and they can chew on them like rawhide, but they break down in the system if they swallow them so that they don't block the system. Um, but oftentimes I like to let the puppies pick. So it's enriching just to go into the pet store and smell everything after the last round of vaccines, just say that, um, <laughs> go when ahead and the last sniff round? everything. When is the last round of vaccines? I know I have like a booklet on that, but I just offhand, what is that? Yeah. So they get four rounds of vaccines and 16 weeks is typically the last one. And you can get it as early as 15 weeks. It's usually 15 to 16 weeks, depending on when they get their first round. That's when they'll get their rabies vaccine and their last round of distemper parvo lepto. So, um, they're generally good to go after that. So um, once they've had all four rounds on board, which it's important that those are done through a veterinarian, not through anyone else. So if you do buy a puppy from a breeder, make sure that your breeder is giving vaccines, the breeder is not giving the vaccines themselves, that they're actually having a veterinarian do it. Um, reason being vaccines kind of side tangent are, are very temperamental, so to speak. These are modified organisms, modified live organisms, you know, so um, if they hit room temperature, they can be completely sterile and do absolutely nothing if they get too warm. Um, so they're, they can't be mixed for more than 24 hours most of the time based on, you know, the manufacturer's um, protocols for those. So um, just a side tangent, side note, make sure all your vaccines are given by a veterinarian, please. Yeah. Um, so 16 weeks, uh, going into the pet store, um, I like to let them sniff. You know, they have a lot of those bins that are on the ground. Uh, so I'll go through, I'll let them sniff each of the bins. I'll crinkle the toys, make some noise, squeak some of the toys. And I like to kind of go with what is driving the puppy. What is the puppy more excited about? Um, and the younger they are, sometimes they're just excited about everything. They get in there and they're like, oh, 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 you know, so... So it's a little more difficult. And as they age, they start to pick some favorites and that's kind of fun. But yeah, usually I'll just go in the direction that they're pulling and it's okay to really buy anything as long as they have supervised play with it, especially if it's a really destructible toy. So destructible, think of like the squeaky toys with the stuffing, like the stuffed toys. Um, they can usually shred those pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. I'll let them, I'll take them home. I, I used to wrap up stuffed toys for my, my dog that's 15 now too, because he likes to shred them, but they're gone in, in 60 seconds, literally. So, um, but I'll let them go to town. I'll buy some out of the dollar bin. So if you want to do that, you can, you just have to make sure they're not swallowing any of the stuffing or swallowing any of the pieces. So, um, you can kind of keep that in mind when you're thinking about which toys to pick out, like how destructible is this toy? And if you bring it home and 
maybe they like to squeeze on it with their teeth and they don't want to shred it and they can have little stuffies with squeakies all over the house and they're fine. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's really based on how um, much the dog really goes to town and pulling it apart or does it actually play with it? But um, yeah, as long as, as long as they're supervised and you don't let them swallow any chunks, you're good. In your experience, what is the best indestructible toy there is? Because I know there's a lot of indestructible ones. You bring it home and 30 minutes later, it's like, well, that was a waste of 20 bucks. Do you have a recommendation <laughs> of one that's like legit indestructible? Yeah, the Gonut. I'm telling you, that, that thing, I love it. The, the Gonut toy is one of my favorites. Um, and I don't know that you can get that in a pet store. I think you have to order them online. But um, they also make the Kong Extreme. And they can start to work it apart after a while. But because you stuff it and you make it fun, oftentimes they don't pull it apart. But it is harder to get apart. Um, but I'm also cautious about things that claim that they're indestructible. Because sometimes, um, number one, they're not. Like the fire hose toys. I've had dogs just literally shred them. So you have that side of things. But then the other side is um, how hard is the material? Are they calling it indestructible because the material is so hard that they can't break it apart? And if that's the case, I won't usually give it to a dog or a puppy because it can fracture their teeth or cause it to wear wear the enamel down. So even though we want things that are going to last a long time, we have to be careful that they're not so indestructible because of how hard the material is on their teeth. That's really important. Um, things like really heavy, thick bones can actually cause wearing and fractures on the teeth. Ice can cause wearing and fractures on the teeth. So um, again, even though we want them to last longer, I like things that have a little give and have a little bounce or you can at least dent, uh, like the Gonut toy or the Kong or the CET shoes. Okay. Uh, what do you put in a Kong? I've always put peanut butter in it. Do you have any other recommendations? Yes, peanut butter. Um, just make sure your peanut butter doesn't have any xylitol in it. Xylitol is an artificial sweetener that sometimes goes into peanut butter brands, and that is toxic to dogs. You can also find that in gum. Um, so I do like using peanut butter. Um, I also use baby food. Uh, so, you know, they have, uh, you can do it a couple different ways. Sometimes I'll use the squeezy pouches cause you can use a squeezy pouch for training, especially building and duration. Um, but you can buy baby food, squeeze it all around on the inside or slather it on in there, toss that in the freezer. Um, I've used banana in the past too. Um, it can get kind of messy once it defrosts. <laughs> so you might want to put them in the crate with that to where you can kind of clean it up. Um, but you can really stuff Kongs with anything, throw some bits of chicken in there. You can throw some kibble in there. I like feeding some of their meals to them sometimes in their Kong. So, um, I take up a lot of their food for training throughout the day when I have a new puppy. So they don't even get full meals from me when, when they come, come to my home. So they'll get a partial meal just for routine sake. And the rest of it, I take up for rewards throughout the day. Um, but sometimes I'll feed their meal, actually that portion of their meal that I'm giving them in a comp so they can roll it around, toss it, have some fun enrichment and kind of have to work it out. Um, and eat part of their meal through that. But yeah, you can, you can stuff Kongs with anything. They even make like the squeezy cheese for dogs. Um, the younger they are, the more options that you have because you don't have to worry as much about obesity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So puppies, you can go to town and have fun and stick all sorts of stuff in there. But just, I, I tend to lean on the side of less is more. So when you're looking at what types of food to stuff in your Kong, think of more limited ingredients. So baby food I, is one of my go-tos just because it's typically just chicken and, or chicken and sweet potato or, you know, just very basic um, easy ingredients that you don't have to worry about a whole bunch of different preservatives and other artificial stuff packed in there. That's a great tip. I didn't know. And I'll be buying baby food for the first time <laughs> in the next week. 
People that know you and know you don't have a baby in the supermarket are going to be like, what the hell is he doing? (laughs) Yeah. That's a new diet fad. I know. Right. Um, I'm curious about introducing a puppy to water or a bath. What is the proper way to do that? Um, have fun with it. Make it exciting. So for baths in particular, I love using what's called a licky mat. Um, they make them with the suction, suction cups on the back. So you can slather some of that peanut butter or some of the baby food or the easy Kong cheese in there and you stick it on the bathtub, pop the puppy in the bathtub and let him go to town. Um, first time I introduce them to water, I make sure it's kind of one of the handheld things or it's a cup. So it's not this you know, that sprays yeah. out because that can startle them. Um, just so it's calm and easy. And just like with nail trims, um, anything I'm going to do to the puppy the first time around, my goal isn't actually to complete the task. It's just to introduce them to the task in a positive way. If I get it going and they're having the time of their lives, okay, I'll keep going. Right. Um, but oftentimes they need slow introductions to things that they're not used to or haven't had before. So I'll pop the licky mat in there, let them have some positive reinforcement with food. If they're more toy motivated, I might give them a squeaky toy while they're in the bath instead. Um, And then I'll just gently kind of wipe them down, roll the water over their bath, make sure it's nice and warm, but not hot, you know, test it out on your skin, make sure, um, you know, it's it's a little easier to test it out kind of on this part of your skin versus your fingers. Your fingers can tolerate uh, much hotter temperatures than, than your wrist can. Um, but just go slow, like just make it, make it a quick five minute thing instead of a 20, 30 minute ordeal of a full scrub down just to get them used to it and excited about it and be really happy the whole time. Be like, Oh, this is great. What's this? And you want to smell the bottle and I've got your towel. And, um, you know, we laugh at people because you hear them talking to their puppies, like their babies, but you know, giving them the baby talk. But the reason we do that is because they like it. So mm. don't feel don't feel dumb doing that. Give them the baby talk. They love it. They respond to it. As long as no one else so, is in the house. That's right. <laughs> no one's here. No one's listening listen to me. <laughs> as long as no one's checking in on the Nest camera uh, at home while you're there. Um, but yeah, seriously, I, I just buy baby food. Oh, good job. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I got your baby food. Are you ready? Let's get your looking mat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, just just do it. Do it in small, short increments at first. Make sure they have some fun with it. Be excited afterwards. Good job. Lots of rewards. Um, and again, same with nail trims. Like I, I do a lot of nail trims when I'm doing my baths, and that's why I always think about the two together. But go into it with just, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do two. And then later on, I'm just going to show you this again, and we're going to have some fun with it and have some treats at the same time. Um, that's kind of how I approach any new thing that I'm going to do to a dog. And um, Bath time is also a really good time to practice palpation. So like touching them, feeling them, looking in their ears. Cause you know, later on down the road, you might clean their ears during bath time. We might give them teeth brushings, things like that. So bath time is a really good time to take some of that peanut butter on your finger and that baby food and kind of rub it in their thumbs a little bit, check out their ears, touch between their toes, you know, lift up their tail very gently. Um, really good time for touching exercises too, to get them super comfortable with that. I noticed a world of difference because when I got Coda, she was my first ever dog and I didn't do a lot of that stuff when I got her. And when I got Raven, I constantly held her. I touched her paws. I turned her upside down. I was doing all, and I can do it all so much more easily now. Whereas with Coda, I could never do that. She fought me every time. So that makes a world of difference. I learned that the hard way. It really does. And if you think about it, each time that she's fighting you, she's stressed out. Whereas mm-hmm. your other dog that's used to it is like, yeah, 
no big deal, this is normal, right? And it makes things a lot easier at the vet hospital, so it doesn't scare the dog nearly as much when you know they're getting poked and prodded. They're just like, oh, okay, they're gonna feed me treats and do the same thing dad does, I'm good. You know? Oh, and you have huskies, don't you? <laughs> Let's hold on that because that is a, I'm going to get some <laughs> down the road. Yes, I know. They're a special. So really important in huskies that they, they um, don't always have the highest pain tolerance. They can Drama be very queens. vocal, very, very dramatic. Yes. So um, lots of touching with huskies early on so that they're not like, oh my God, you clipped my nail. It's the worst day ever. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, they'll cry before they're even getting like a shot. They're just, eh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They are very much drama queens. They cry and scream and talk. It's funny though, but yeah, they are drama queens. Um, and they love with their the bath, With the bath in the water, like how often should I be looking to do that? Um, I don't usually typically recommend bathing more than once a month at the most. I mean, they have all these natural oils, and their skin is really good at at, at kind of keeping things regulated. And if you over bathe them, you can really upset the balance and the oils of their skin. So I wouldn't push it more than once a month, um, unless they just get really disgusting. <laughs> they well, go out if, for a, a mud swim or something. What if you want to introduce them to the water? Is once a month okay to, to get them used to the water? Or do you need to do it more earlier on when they're younger? Earlier on when they're younger, I would do it a little bit more frequently. Time's a little bit different for them when they're a puppy. So I would, I would probably do it every couple of weeks. But, you okay. know, again, we're not talking like long baths. I would get them used to just wipe downs in between too. So taking a couple puppy wipes to them and going over their paws and their little body. Um, but, yeah, early on you can do it. Just you don't want extended bath times to where you're like really stripping all the oils off of their skin. Right. And I imagine introducing them to a brush is kind of the same thing, right? Yes, I would brush more frequently because if you do have long-haired dogs, they require more grooming, obviously. So I would do that on a daily basis. And same thing with the bath or the nail tripping. Make, tripping. <laughs> 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 no nail tripping, just nail trimming. Um, <laughs> um, do it very slowly and have some food, have squeaky toy, have something fun for them. So introduce them to the brush first, let them sniff it, let them check them out. Like, Oh, look at these bristles. What's this? Like get them intrigued about it, make it something fun and then start slowly, you know, a pass down the back first, avoid the head to begin with because the head is always kind of like, well, what are you doing? So start with the back kind of down the back, um, food reward, little brush again, little food reward. You can use your licky mat for something like that too, for repetitive motions, but a little bit at first and then a little bit more and then the next time a little bit more to where you have full-on brushing um, and oftentimes if you do it the right way and you do it gradually and they're having fun they'll start seeking that because um, oftentimes they'll like it and they'll want you to brush them so as long as it's introduced the right way it can be a really um, good bonding experience for you I'm over two on that so I'm going to take yeah. your advice <laughs> hopefully a third times the show we do have a husky you have to brush. yes you do so yes. I hope that advice works for me. I need that. Um, you can do it. I'll let you know. If not, I'm having you back on. Um, <laughs> so another thing that my older dog really got stressed about, but my younger one does not, is thunder. How, how do we prepare dogs for thunder, if at all, or is it just a crapshoot whether your dog gets stressed or not? 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the, the most that you can do is support them in the event that they do get stressed. And by support, I don't mean coddling. So if they're shaking and they're trembling and they're, you know, very upset and you're like, it's okay, blah, blah, blah. You're really reinforcing that state of mind and you're telling them they should be anxious. Um, people often do that and don't realize that they're making the situation worse. So having some confidence, having some positive experiences um, based on how your puppy is responding. So and you just really kind of need to tune in. The first couple times you have a thunderstorm, um, do something fun. Grab grab the fetch toy or the the tug toy. You know, do do the snuffle mat for some enrichment. Um, yeah. So if you, if you start off kind of on the right foot with that, uh, to where you know you're 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 basically anticipating that they could potentially have a fear, so you're having some fun during that time anyway. Um, you might be able to stave that off some, or if there's some underlying fear anyway, just already there, maybe you can help them through that a little bit more and they won't be nearly as anxious about it. So um, it's really very independent dog to dog as to whether they're going to be afraid of things like that, loud noises. Um, during their critical fear period, like I talked about before, it's important that they're around loud noises, but at a safe distance to where they can still have a positive experience so that they're less likely to be scared of those things later on. Same thing with thunder. If you don't have a dog that's, you know, just innately afraid of thunder, then you're good. Just make sure they have positive experiences while thunderstorms are going on because they can develop a fear with that. But if every time thunder's happening, you know, they're hanging out with dad and dad's totally confident. The other dogs are totally confident. And hey, we play with our tug toy or we have a little treat over here. Or we do a skill exercise. They're way less likely to pay attention to something that could potentially create some anxiety or fear, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I prefer, it's just so much nicer when my younger dog just doesn't care. I mean, other dog would be hiding behind a toilet in the bathroom and I just felt terrible. Oh. Like, she's clearly scared and, you know, I hate that, you know. Um, yeah. One other thing is prey drive. So having two Huskies, they both have a prey drive. Is that eliminated in a social environment when they're really young? Or do some dogs just have that and you can't really work it out of the system? No, some dogs just have that. Uh, some dogs are just genetically predisposed to have a very high prey drive. And sometimes you won't see it until they're mature. They hit that last period of sexual maturity and you're all of a sudden like, whoa, <laughs> where did this come from? Um, so there is a predatory sequence that is primal in dogs. And because of how we've bred them over the years, some of those um, portions of that sequence don't always show up. So, um, you know, different things like um, seeking and stalking and um, chasing, catching, grabbing, killing, consuming. So you have all these different parts to this predatory sequence that um, goes way, way, way back, ancestrally speaking, to where they had to hunt for survival. So they were scavengers and hunters. And so that's where that comes from. But now that they don't have that need anymore, you'll see only bits and pieces of that every once in a while. So remnants of that, that predatory sequence, so to speak, because there's not a use for it anymore, basically. Um, we provide all of their needs for them, but it's still programmed into some dogs to where you'll have either stalking behavior and or chasing or catching and sometimes killing behaviors too. It's very rare to see the consuming behavior. That's, that's a whole nother set of issues down the road, but, um, so hopefully you won't see any of that, but, um, yeah, so it's innate, it's natural. Uh, and if you have a dog that has a high prey drive, it's important to differentiate when it's appropriate to use those behaviors and when it is not appropriate to use those behaviors. And that takes a balance. So providing an outlet for them because it's natural, it's instinctual, they have to get that out. That's healthy. So you can do things like 
um, fast cat, you know, fetch um, a, a catch and chase game with them, uh, flirt pull. Um, you can do some, some all sorts of different games to where they can just get that energy out and have some fun with it. But then on the flip side, we're teaching them that, no, we don't go after, you know, the bicycle that's that's riding by really fast. No, we don't chase the squirrels and try to kill them. So um, just being able to guide them kind of as a parental figure by providing an outlet for those behaviors, but then also teaching them when not to use those behaviors and when those behaviors are not okay, because dogs don't always differentiate very well when they're prey driven. So um, you can have a dog that typically, you know, isn't around kids and goes after the squirrels, so big deal. Then you have a kid ride by on a skateboard or something, and you'll see that kind of grab behavior. That's that's often predatory, and that's where you see predatory or prey kind of slide in, or a play rather slide into prey because they might be having fun and doing their own thing, but whew, something catches their eye and they just go for it instinctually. Right. So if you have dogs with a high prey drive, it's important to give them that outlet to where they can simulate some of those natural behaviors and have those safe safe catches and safe kills huh, with something inanimate, preferably. Um, and then on the other side, training them and teaching them that um, we don't just impulsively go after things. We stop and we think. Uh, having a really good, strong bond with them to where they're used to checking in with you, having that check and balance system can really help that so that they don't just go after impulsively everything, every fast moving thing that goes by. It's really important for them to understand that difference. Okay. And in my past, I, for dating experiences, I've never really been able to successfully date somebody with cats because I have the Huskies <laughs> with the prey drive and it just kind of is what it is. I'm a dog person anyways, but for people maybe who Maybe you shouldn't date people with cats. Oh yeah, I don't, I just don't. <laughs> but for Question people, number one at dinner. Do you have cats? Do you have cats? Okay. <laughs> Let's just go now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get this to go. Um, so, but for people that are in that position where at some point they're going to have to introduce their dog and a cat, is there a good way to do that? There are definitely ways to do that. So, but what you have to keep in mind if you're introducing a cat into a situation where you have a dog that has a high prey drive is you're never going to take that drive out of that dog. The best thing you're going to do is try to control the environment and manage the situation. So there's no way to remove that piece out of the dog's brain. It's there. It's part of the dog. That's who they are. Um, so you, it's more of a management type situation to where if you have the type of relationship with your dog, that your dog looks to you for guidance and instead of making impulsive decisions, will stop and think and kind of filter that, um, it's a lot easier to manage that. So, um, I will say even the most well-managed dog that has a very high prey drive that I wouldn't normally trust with a cat, I will never trust with a cat alone mm -hmm. um, because they're animals and they're going to make animal decisions. And at some point their brain might override what I've taught them or what they know, and they're going to go after it and they're going to kill it. So, and, and there are varying degrees of predatory behavior too. So some dogs just like the chase. Um, they don't have that kill part of the sequence, right? So the cat might give chase, they might chase. And then if the cat stops and looks at the dog, like now what? The dog might be like, oh, this isn't fun anymore. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression either that just because a dog chases a cat or, or has some of these different behaviors that it's always a kill situation. It's not necessarily. It depends on the dog, the severity of the behavior that's being displayed and your ability to manage the situation 
based on those signs and symptoms. So important to know that you can't take it out of the dog. Yes, you can manage it. So if you have to make it work, you can, but you should, you should always be on guard about it because um, I can tell you from experience, I had an incredibly high prey driven um, American Pitbull Terrier and man, she, that dog was my heart. Um, but she would kill anything, <laughs> anything small and moving. Mm. She wanted to kill it. Um, and once she did, she was like, Oh, look at me. Look what I did. I caught a squirrel. It's dead. Ha-da! What are we doing next? And she'd be all happy about it. And I'm like, Oh, you know, um, I was able to, to train her to such an extent that that dog wouldn't touch a squirrel if it were right here in front of her face going, nah, 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 nah. Um, but, and, and her eyes would get giant and she would shiver and shake, but she wouldn't touch it. She was so beautifully obedient. And I had such a strong bond with her that she was able to override that system. She still wanted to kill it. Boy, did she ever want to kill those things, but she didn't. Um, even in that situation where it's me and I know my capabilities and I know my animal very, very well. And I think that 99.99% of the time, she's not going to touch it. She's still a dog. She still doesn't have a human brain and she doesn't make human decisions and she's still wired to kill things. So um, I would never leave her alone in a situation with an animal without me being right there. That's what I thought. You just confirmed everything I've thought for like the last 15 years because I've had conversations with people. It's like, I just don't trust it. I can never like, especially like leave the house and like nope. with my dogs and the cats, like, I don't know what I'd come home to. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have that conversation with you because um, you just confirmed what I've been thinking. That's, uh, yeah. And the, the scary part for me is that people are really good at making excuses. Like, oh, well, I don't think my dog would actually do something like that and kind of ignoring yeah. the signs. Often it's, it's a convenience thing like, oh, it'll be fine. It's okay. And then until something really tragic happens, it's, it's difficult for people to wrap their brain around just how serious it is if your dog displays those type of behaviors. And, and we don't blame dogs for that. I mean, that's just part of who they are. Some dogs are great with all animals and will never display any portions of the predatory secrets, but, but the dogs that do mean business. So, yeah, I've had girls I've tried to date in the past be like, well, my cat acts just like a dog. I'm like, I'm sure it tastes just like a cat. (laughs) (laughs) It don't matter. (laughs) No, you don't understand. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, I would feel terrible. So let's just not do that. Yes. Uh, All right. I got a few more questions for you. I can, I can keep you on. Um, I can talk so all night too. Being a husky owner, they pull. So let's mm-hmm. let's tackle that. Do you um, believe in harnesses? And if yay or nay, regardless, like how do you work on the pulling part? Yes, I believe harnesses exist. No. Um, <laughs> so if you think about, so huskies are sled dogs. Sled dogs yes. are built to pull. Yeah. Um, same with like, you know, I love my pit bulls. American pit bull terriers are, are really good at weight pull. They're champions at it because they're so good at it. Um, and harnesses are designed for pulling. Um, they were designed for working dogs, sled dogs, weight pull dogs. Um, weight pull came much later down the road, but Um, the whole purpose behind a harness is actually distributing the weight all across the body so that they are able to get down low and they're able to pull weight. So they're made for working dogs. Um, Nowadays, people kind of pop them on because they don't want to, they don't want them pulling on their neck and they don't want to cause any cervical damage. And that's all great and fine and dandy. But the reason that cervical damage is caused um, is because people misuse leashes. 
So it's not necessarily the equipment unless they have a, a congenital defect or they've developed, you know, intervertebral disc disease or something like that. Um, a collar and leash is perfectly safe and appropriate for training a dog as long as it's not misused, which is another reason I love the hands-free leash because you can't misuse it. It's not in your hands. Um, but back to the harness thing. So usually when someone wants to train a dog on a harness, which I definitely recommend for dogs that have longer backs. So like basset hounds, dachshunds, things like that. Um, I do very gentle uh, leash work with them first and then we'll transition them to a harness. Harnesses are really good for little dogs too, but I always start with the leash uh, and collar combination to teach them what I'm asking first and where I want them position wise before transitioning them to a harness. If you have a dog that's on a harness and already pulls, good luck. Yes, you can teach them on a harness not to pull. Yes, it's possible, but it's, it's much more of an uphill battle and it's much more difficult to kind of communicate with them with that piece of equipment. In my opinion, there are dog trainers out there that may feel differently about that. There are other behavior professionals out there that may feel differently about that. In my personal experience, it's much easier, much, much easier to work with a leash and collar first or even just a slip lead um, as long as you do it in the right way and you're appropriate with leash handling, uh, to do that first and then transition them to a harness afterwards, you're you're way less likely to see a lot of those pulling behaviors. Um, dogs have what's called an opposition reflex. So, um, it's, it's kind it, we kind of do too, but it's, it's where if you pull one way, they pull the opposite direction. And that's kind of what opposition reflex is. If you push one way, they push back into the direction that you're pulling. So, um, or pushing that's oppositional reflex and that's completely normal and natural. We just teach the dogs that they don't have to give into that. They can rely on our cues and our signals based on how we communicate through the leash. So, um, nothing wrong with harnesses. I just think that you should teach a uh, leash and collar skill first to avoid some of those pulling problems. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with, uh, that tell me that their arm hurts when they're, they're done taking their dog for a walk or their dogs like yanking them all over the place. One of my first questions is, is what type of equipment are you using? And I can't tell you how many times out of 10, probably eight, nine times out of 10. Oh, I walk my dog on a harness. Okay. Let's, let's switch this up. So, because it does reinforce the pulling. Okay. I might be driving to your area <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah. Puppy boot camp with Auntie Sarah. Yes. Not just puppy. <laughs> you could have my three-year-old too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huskies are obviously, like you said, they're bred to pull and they yes, definitely they're built for it. show it. Yeah. Especially when they get excited, you see them dig their back feet into the, into the ground. They spring yes. off. It's, oh boy. I mean, it's, it's kind they of fun love to it. see, but yeah, it's put your arm out of the socket. Um, okay. So that's really good to know. Do you have videos of that in your YouTube channel? For harnesses or for leash uh, pulling, you mean? For le yeah. For leash training and stuff. Yes. So, um, I have one in particular that shows a dog that I work with recently that is on a harness. That was one of the first things that we switched up, but just pulling all over the place more so because he was reactive to his environment. But, um, there's a lot of really good tips in that video as to how to kind of stop that process, reset and go into it with a better mind frame so that you can set the dog up for success when you're trying to work with them on leash skills, especially if they're, they're really heavy pullers. I have a leash pressure video. Um, it uses negative reinforcement. Negative, not to be uh, confused with bad. It simply is a mathematical term for removing something. And in this case is removing pressure. So I have a leash video uh, about pressure to show you how to very delicately 
teach a dog how to be sensitive to leash pressure and fight that oppositional reflex. So not fight it really, but give into that oppositional reflex. Um, so there's a couple of them up there that can help you. Um, the other one I would recommend too, especially if it's a, an early on uh, newly adapted dog or newly adapted puppy is the video I have called The Perfect Walk. Um, for me, a perfect walk doesn't mean a super tight show heel or anything like that. It just means a nice, comfortable, loose leash walk that you can enjoy with your dog to where you're not, you know, they're not out in front of you and not pulling at the end of the leash and all that kind of stuff or reacting to everything in their environment. So um, in that video in particular, there's some homework exercises that I give at the end to help people practice some of these skills. And each of these different exercises can add up to help you have a, uh, have much better success um, with teaching your dog different leash skills that make walking uh, much more enjoyable. That sounds really nice. I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> so I will be watching these videos and if I'm not doing this right, I think I'm just gonna take one of your virtual classes. Yeah, yeah. Having two dogs that are gonna pull me all over the place does not sound like an enjoyable time. Well, and now they're going to be um, representatives for your new puppy. They're going to be teaching your new puppy things. I so. know, yeah. Oh, I'm so excited, but at the same time, like, I'm so nervous too. Like, I want to make sure I do everything <laughs> right from the get-go so I don't have any of these problems later. Well, if you're into reading, I will tell you there's a really quick read that I absolutely love that can really help set you up for success. Um, it's just uh, just some simple things that you can do. talks about some of the hands-free leash things and some of the things that you can do just initially starting out when you first bring your puppy home as a parent to this new little dependent. Um, and the, the book is by Dr. Sophia Yin and it's called Perfect Puppy in Seven Days. Um, but it is a super quick read. It's an inexpensive book, but um, I love how she sets up the foundational skill building and relationship building in that book to really help you jumpstart and get off on the right paw with, with your puppy. So you might want to look into that one as a resource. Okay. Yeah, for sure. That sounds great. If I hear my puppy at, at, uh, crying in the crate at night, what do I do? It depends. Is that I have to pee and go outside cry? Or is that a tantrum? I don't want to be here. I want to be snuggled up in your bed cry. If it's the I have to potty cry, which you'll get used to the different mm -hmm. sounds, um, open that crate door, take the puppy outside and then go potty. If it's the I don't want to um, avoid giving into that at all costs, even if it's an hour worth of that I don't wanna, don't give into it. Um, it'll be much, much harder the next time around. And also what's even worse is on the flip side of that, you can start creating a negative association with the crate, meaning not, um, not a happy place for them. And you want that place to, to continue being a happy place. Even if down the road later on, you want to, once you can trust them not to chew things or eat things or that kind of thing, uh, allow them to sleep in the bed or sleep you know, out of the crate, that's fine, but be strict stick with the program early on. Um, and you'll, again, you'll learn the difference between I really have to pee and I just want out. Okay. And a few times you've brought up training treats. Is there any training treats that you would recommend I start with? Yes. Um, I like things again, limited ingredients. So, uh, one of the things that I use a lot is, um, I'm a big fan of Nom Nom's jerky treats. Nom Nom makes both beef and chicken and they come in these really big, beautiful, hearty pieces. They're made in the U.S. Um, they don't have a lot of recalls like you hear about these Chinese chicken jerky recalls and all that stuff. Um, but limited ingredients, just dehydrated meat. And the nice thing about it is you can pull it off in strips. And so if you, you can have a long strip if you're trying to, to hold them in a position for a long time or teach them duration. Or you can break them off into tiny little bits. Um, 
And so I'll use those very frequently. I use their kibble, just their regular food, whatever I'm giving them if they're not on a fresh food, if they're on a dry kibble, I'll use that as well. Um, I like the Zooks, the little minis that they have. Um, they have them in all these different flavors. They have like rabbit, they've got duck and peanut butter and oats. And so oftentimes I'll use those um, as my more kind of high value treats. And then um, I also like to use the freeze dried liver. So they're pretty high in fat. So I feel safe using them with um, puppies, older dogs. I tend to be a little bit more sparing with them, but they tend to love those. Um, but the thing I'll tell you about training treats too is use them in variants. So when you're working on a really hard skill or you're linking behaviors or your puppy really does something that's exceptional, that's what you save kind of those high value treats for. So like the Zooks or the chicken jerky, things like that. For everyday rewards, um, you can have them just working for their food for the most part. Um, one of the other things that I'll do too is if I'm gonna be using like a handful of food throughout the day, cause I'm gonna be home most of the day and I'm gonna spend a lot of time with my puppy, they'll only get a tiny little bit in their Kong or in their food bowl in, in, in the morning for that first meal. I'll take up most of their breakfast and lunch, add it together. I'll throw in some of my other treats. So a little bit of my jerky bits, a little bit of my freeze dried liver, and I'll shake it up, pop it in my treat pouch. And the fun thing about that is sometimes I'll get a kibble, sometimes I'll get a jerky, sometimes it'll be a zook, sometimes it'll be a piece of liver. And it just keeps that seeking part of their brain just firing on all cylinders. And you're like, oh, what's next? And oh, what's that? And what's coming after that? Um, so it's just another layer of fun to kind of add in for your puppy by, by keeping them guessing kind of what's coming next out of your treat pouch for doing something good. That's great. Just a lot of great advice, little small details that I just haven't even thought of. Um, so we're talking about treats. Do you have any recommendations or favorite dog foods? I know there's a lot of debate over that, and especially with the grain and non-grain. Yes, please. Um, I would avoid grain-free diets. Uh, there are some formulations out there that are okay and that provide the supplementation that um, was causing such a problem with the grain-free fad. Uh, there's still a grain-free fad out there right now. Um, people don't tend to realize that dogs are actually omnivorous when it comes to their nutritional requirements. They're able to extract vitamins and minerals out of plant materials and starches, whereas like cats can't. So for whatever reason, this became some marketing thing where it was a trend, basically, like, um, you know, uh, orange is the new black, while grain-free is the new dog food fad. And now it's, now it's switching to homemade diets. Don't even get me started on that. Um, but when it comes to grain-free, um, they're seeing some really startling links in taurine deficiencies and heart problems and some other concerning issues. So the, the rule of thumb, and this comes straight from a board-certified veterinary nutritionist that works for a company that makes grain-free diets because that's what the shelves want in the pet store. Her advice is, yes, we make great diets. No, some of them don't have grains. So if you buy one of our diets that doesn't have grains, feed your dog some grains, meaning give it some treats with grains in it, cook some farro, cook some quinoa, some brown rice, and mix it in with their food. Um, my advice is to get a more complete diet to begin with, so you don't have to add all these different things in it. Uh, I mentioned Nom Nom for jerky treats. I love their fresh food. Um, I feed my dogs Nom Nom fresh food because, again, it's limited ingredients. I know what's in it. Um, it was a board-certified veterinary nutritionist that formulated that. They've got a heck of a team. They've got a head of bioinformatics. They have a microbiologist on the team that is absolutely brilliant. Um, so I, I love their food um, and I love their transparency. So there's a lot of fresh food dog, fresh dog food companies out there. You know, you got Farmer's Dog and Ollie and these ones that are popping up in the little boutique end caps in the, in the, 
you know, grocery stores and targets, but they're not nearly as transparent. So when you go to their website, you should be able to see every ingredient that's in the food, but more importantly, who formulated that food. Is it some giant marketing company or was it actually a board certified veterinary nutritionist? I think that's really critical. Um, so that's my fresh food tangent. <laughs> um, but anyway, on the flip side of that, um, if you're looking at kibble or you're looking at um, another form of diet, um, mostly kibble, you've got kibble and raw. I definitely don't typically recommend raw. I think cooked food is much safer. Um, but as far as kibble goes, you're looking just for high quality ingredients and highly digestible proteins. So Highly digestible proteins mean things like chicken, turkey, pork, venison, fish. You want to avoid things like lamb. Lamb is not highly digestible for dogs. Um, boutique diets like kangaroo, um, you know, there's just not enough research out there on how digestible kangaroo really is. And some of those boutique diets are really, what we also call novel diets, are really saved for dogs that have actual food allergies or food sensitivities. So mm. these little you know, strange, rare, exotic bison dinners were not actually formulated initially for normal dogs. It was dogs that had other types of food sensitivities. Um, you know, and everybody's always concerned about food allergies, but honestly, a small portion of the population has actual food allergies. Uh, most common allergies, if they do, are to like chicken and beef, but um, most dogs don't struggle with that problem. And an even tinier portion of the population has an issue with grains in their diet. So um, I love that that fad started because people were all of a sudden worried about grains in their own food because surely if that's what you have to worry about for humans you have to worry about it for, for dogs too right anyway uh, our dogs go on the atkins diet right? <laughs> no carbs for yeah. dogs. <laughs> we got paleo for dogs we've got atkins for dogs yeah we're gonna do some keto for dogs like who knows what they're gonna come up with next but i'm like just leave it to the experts to make the dog food that's um, good to know i'm glad we i'm glad i asked that because there's still a lot of question hanging around about that. So I'm glad you answered that. Um, that's just great. Yeah. You know. yeah. And there's some great diets. Again, like I said, one of my friend, that's a veterinarian. She works for a company that makes grain free diets because that's what sells. But they also say mix in some treats, mix in some grains. You, you know, you, ha you have to do what you have to do as a business to survive. And I get that. Um, but at the same time, we have to also kind of find some ethical ground as far as what's a good formulation and what's not, what, you know, we have to put the dog's nutrition first. And I, I think some companies are much more balanced at that than others. And there's plenty of good kibbles out there that are perfectly well balanced. And, um, you know, uh, I, I like, um, you know, wellness, wellness has been pretty predictable and pretty consistent core with their core. They have a Turkey diet that I really like. So there's plenty of diets out there that work perfectly fine for a number of different dogs. Um, but just to give you a tidbit of information, the um, board certified veterinary nutritionist, if you go to one to have them actually formulate a diet for your dog, it is amazing how specific every diet that's formulated is for each individual animal. It's really interesting that we actually try to generalize so much that we just lump them into these different categories and we're like here this bag is great for dogs from this age to this age well it completely depends on their breed their you know genetic background and influences um like nom nom the company i was mentioning before they do an actual gut microbiome test kit so that you can figure out what kind of foods are going to be best for your dog based on their their own digestive tract so it's way more complex than people make it out to be and it's actually very individually based dog for dog for dog so my overall overarching advice is as long as they're maintaining a healthy weight 
as long as their vet checkups are going really well, as long as they're eating well for you, you're having normal feces, you're, you're on an okay path. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a lot of debate. There's so many different options, so many different foods, ingredients, and you know, you give your dog food every day. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, I like to set yes. it and forget it, you know, just get the right food and then you're good to go for unless something happens like years down the road, but it is nice yeah, to exactly. set it and forget it. So I'm going to be a little selfish here for a minute. I'm curious about your experience with the breed of Huskies. What, what is your experience been like? You're laughing. I'm laughing. I have an idea <laughs> you're going to say, <laughs> So most of my experience with Huskies comes from working in, uh, as a veterinary nurse through different hospitals. Um, and as I mentioned before, their pain tolerance is a little on the low side. Uh, they tend to tell you about everything, most of the time what they disagree with, very vocally. Um, but honestly, one of my favorite stories ever, uh, I worked in an emergency hospital um, in Huntersville, and we had a, a regular patient in the ER very, very loved Husky, um, sweet Husky, very spoiled, rotten pup, um, who owner, the owners just absolutely adored this dog and had um, a slew of issues, a lot of health issues, you know, kind of poor breeding situation, but it was an older dog. And this dog, when it would come into the ER, would cry and fuss and howl the entire time and would keep all of us like on edge and all of the other patients that were in the ICU on edge and like just like complain the entire time. It would have its, we would put it in the corner with big fluffy beds and section it off and because he'd have to be on IV fluids and I think we did a couple blood transfusions at one point, but would just complain the entire time all through the night. So, I mean, I used to work second and third shift and this husky, if you can just, you, you know what huskies sound like when they want to talk and tell you about it. And it was just all night long. <laughs> I remember one fine day we had um, a, an ER vet that was working and she was getting big into acupuncture and, um, you know, was, was doing a lot of research on it and taking some continuing education. And she had her little kit with her and his, his he was just going to town with his, you know, and, and she's like, oh my God. And she opens up her acupuncture kit and she goes over there and she walks over to the dog and she's like, boom, boom, boom. And she pops these little needles like right in his head and very specific points, obviously. I don't yeah. know anything about it. And he just shut up. And then he laid his head on the floor and he went to sleep and we were all like, oh. <laughs> wow. Acu acupuncture and huskies. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was my, that was my most interesting husky experience while working as an ER tech. Uh, we were just, because he'd been in our ER multiple times and he would howl and cry and fuss the whole mm. night. And we felt so bad because he couldn't sleep, but he needed to be there. Uh, we even tried to have the owner come in and hang out with him for a while. But yeah, acupuncture, she walked over all like, oh, I'm going to try this. And three little needles right into his head and, and he slept wow. like a baby. Yeah. But yeah, so most of my experiences, I have to be pretty careful with them because huskies tend to be offended easily. Um, very easily. So, you know, it's a lot of, Hey, look at this while we do this over here and just trying to make them feel more comfortable. Also kind of giving them some choices. There's a lot of power in choices. Do you want this or do you want that? Do you want to come over here? Or do you want to go over there? Do you want this person to play with you while, while we do that? Do you want this person to play with you? They like, they like options. So sometimes just giving them a little bit of choice can help alleviate some of that. I really have no interest in what you're doing to me. Mm. They are a very stubborn breed. They are more difficult to train. I this is my third husky, and I realized I can be getting breeds that are a little easier to train. <laughs> it's like I'm yes. making a, 
myself. But man, I I don't know. I've always had an affinity for them, um, and I've and I've had two great ones. They're they're honestly super special to me. I love the way they talk. They're very mm-hmm. they're very for they love people. Um, and they're yeah. so animated. They really are. Yeah, and yeah, they are like I said, drama queens, which is. Yeah always funny <laughs> unless they're, unless i'm trying to give them a bath then it becomes a pain in the butt <laughs> slow slow and steady wins the race get, get get yourself a licky mat let your puppy have some fun with it and yeah well you've given me and everyone our listeners so much great advice so many great things to look for and buy and research i can't wait to go check all of that out i'm going to put all those links in the post on Instagram. I'm going to put uh, post all of your social media and YouTube channels on that. If you'd like to give uh, our audience a way to find you on Instagram and your website and YouTube, please do that now because you have a lot of great content up there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love writing and education is huge for me. I love pushing out as much as I can to give people out there as many tools that they can use to really build that bond and have the best experience they can without the stress of all these different problematic behaviors that can be prevented. So um, you can check out some of my information I put up on Instagram. Forewarn you, I do put kid pics and food pics on my Instagram page too. So if you're only into the dog stuff, maybe avoid the Instagram, but it's at Sarah, S-A-R-A dot Andrako, O-N-D-R-A-K-O. And then of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash Sarah Andrako. So there's the best place to find me. Um, if you're on Facebook, I do have a behavior page there too. It's just Sarah Andrako behavior, but lots of good information that I try to push out through all of the social media platforms because everybody has their favorites and everybody has different ways to consume information. So I try to keep pumping out as much as I can to really help people through different problems that they see. And occasionally I'll do a live Q and a, um, cause chances are if a couple of people have one question, if I do it live, uh, other people that have the same question can hear it and kind of benefit from that as well. So definitely check me out on social. Yes, please do. Um, you've been awesome. And keep in mind people that she does virtual training classes that's something i might be looking into so (laughs) as you can tell she knows her stuff uh you've been a joy to have Uh, i appreciate you taking i like i said i can keep you here all night i think i've done a pretty good job of asking a lot of questions (laughs) my head i'm sure i'll have more in a couple of weeks so we'll see how that goes but like I yes, said, I'm very I excited to hear about the new puppy. <laughs> I'll be posting pictures on, on Instagram, so please follow along. Um, but like I said, thank you so much for joining me. You've given, you've given so much, so much great information. You've gone into the weeds and we've gone through the details, which is, which is fantastic. I now know what to expect and how to handle specific situations so much better. And another fun little tidbit is that my dad is coming down from New York and we're go- he's going to get a sister of my puppy. And oh, so they're going to stay in the family. That's great. Yep. So he's actually never owned a dog before. So he oh. knows from, he's known from my experiences, like my older dog has lived in, you know, in that house with them. So he's familiar with dogs. He loves dogs. But this episode is going to serve him well and anybody else in his situation of not really owning a dog before, what am I getting into? You gave a lot of great information. So I'm happy. I'm super happy to, to tell him, hey, listen to this podcast episode. You're going to get so much out of it. So once again, thank you so much. You can find me 
on Instagram at the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much. all the way to the end of this episode and enjoyed it and or have listened to previous episodes and liked any of them please take a moment to rate my podcast and tell your friends and family and follow me on instagram at the pursuit of happiness podcast and a website is soon coming thanks for listening